I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, in the church in Wichita, Kansas. In fact, at a, a church called Westlink Christian Church there. To say that I grew up in that place is not an understatement. I truly did. I was there every weekend because that was very important to my parents, and I believe it ought to be important to every parent. I am not one of those kids that would look back and say, gosh, my parents were wrong for taking me to church all the time. I'm bitter towards the church. Not at all. In fact, I'm exactly the opposite of that. By having the opportunity to grow up with that type of a faith background, I fell deeper and deeper in love with Jesus and deeper and deeper in love with the church because of it. And I am very, very grateful. As I look back on that heritage, though, back on that history, what I usually see in my own introspection are the faces of the people that invested in my life. I see my fourth grade Sunday school teacher, her name was Betsy Billing. She was 120 years old when she taught me Sunday school, I, but I loved her and she loved us. I see Jim Coates, who has gone on to be with the Lord, a, a tragic death when he was way too young. He was my seventh and eighth grade Sunday school teacher. And there's Hank Brandis. He taught us in ninth grade. And Rick Wright and Craig Tucker, youth ministers that I had in my past. And I'm very grateful for them. I sit in their shadows and I am thankful for the investments that they made. There was Gene Carlson and Richard Applegate, the senior minister and associate minister of Westling Christian that invested so much in us and taught us a love for the Word of God, and I will be forever grateful for them as well. But every once in a while, there are some faces that pop into my memory as I think back through that faith heritage that were just inspiring people. I didn't know them well, and I couldn't even tell you their names today, yet they were still inspiring folks. They were the missionaries that would come and visit our church and make presentations and tell us everything that was going on. Now, I have to be honest with you and tell you that there were times in the 70s as a kid that I thought, how long can this slideshow go on? You know what it was like with missionary presentations, but still I would look at their lives and their ministry and just be moved by all that they did. There is a new breed of missionary today that has caught my attention that exact same way. I'm paying attention to what they're doing, paying attention to the fruits of their efforts and the fruits of their lives, always intrigued when I get any kind of an update on what they're doing. Let me tell you about these folks. I don't necessarily know all of their names. In fact, I know very few of them. I just know some of the stories they've told. This new breed of missionary is risking everything that they have to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to places where they are not welcome. They are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to places that really just a few years ago would have never allowed them to come. If they did make it into those countries, they did it under the cover of darkness. They got there under other auspices and they secretly shared the gospel. Today they are boldly sharing the gospel. These missionaries that I'm talking about are ones that are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ into Muslim countries. Now, if you know anything about the religion of Islam, you know that most of the people that practice it and participate in it became Muslim by heritage. They were born into it. They didn't make a choice for it. They were just born into it. There is a radical form of Islam that believes that anybody that does not subscribe to that type of a faith journey is an infidel. And in their radical beliefs, they would tell you that any infidel needs to be killed. So for these missionaries to willingly, boldly carry the gospel into a land that believes that, that's, uh, that's brave, that's strong, that's bold. That's the kind of thing that inspires my heart. 
Some of the stories that are coming back from them are absolutely amazing because the Christian church is exploding now in Muslim countries where Islam believed that they had everything wrapped up. Christianity is getting a foothold there and it is growing exponentially because of these types of folks. One of them's name is Rosalind. She's a young lady. Rosalind has another team of young people that she works with and their whole goal is just to get the Bible into the hands of people that have never seen it before. So Rosalind says this is the way they do it. They get together in the morning and they pray because they need all of the courage that can, that can come only from the Lord. Then they wait. Rosalind is a young lady, so she says it's safer for them if the men have left the homes before they knock on doors. They have targeted specific apartment complexes. And Rosalind and her team, after they have prayed and waited for the men to leave, will walk up to the doors, knock on the door. More often than not, the door gets opened. And they introduce themselves this way. Hi, my name is Rosalind. I'm an American, and I am a believer in Jesus Christ. We have a gift for you. And those people will hold their hands out to receive the New Testament in the Arabic languages. Rosalind says more often than not, they accept it. Now that's a bold move just on their behalf. To take a Bible into their homes, boy, there's a lot of people that are risking everything to do that. So she said they hand them the Bible and they take the Bible and they take it into their homes under the promise of actually reading it. Now that's her goal, that's her job, that's their mission, to get doors opened and to get Bibles into those homes. There's another group that comes behind Rosalind and her group. One fellow's name is Brad, in fact, he has been behind Rosalind at different times. It's not his job to get the doors open, it's his job to go behind them and disciple the people that have taken the Bibles. Brad tells this story. He sat down with a fellow named Najib. Najib had accepted the Bible, Brad found out that he had read the Bible. Not only had he read it, but Najib said he had read it twice. Brad was really excited. If he had read the New Testament cover to cover two different times, he knew that they were going to have a lot to talk about. So he was real excited. Brad looked right at this fellow and he said, just trying to establish a baseline. Well, what'd you think of the Apostle Paul? Najib thought about it for just a moment or two and he said, I do not remember the Apostle Paul. And Brad thought, you have read the New Testament cover to cover twice and you don't remember the Apostle Paul? Good heavens, he wrote two-thirds of it. Brad would say, in his flesh, he believed that Najib was lying to him about having read the New Testament and he was just on the brink of calling him out in that lie. Just on the brink of calling him a liar. When the Holy Spirit stopped him, and Brad says that's exactly what happened, the Holy Spirit stopped him and said, you need to take a different track. So he did. Still trying to establish this baseline, Brad says to him, well, what do you remember? And this is what Najib said. He thought for a moment or two and said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that really was quite remarkable. That's what he remembered. Brad said that he walked into that home prepared to disciple Najib and Najib discipled him. He reminded him of what really mattered. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that really is quite remarkable. I wonder for him as he was reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when he stumbled across the resurrection, if it was like the two men that were on the road to Emmaus when they discovered the resurrection. Tina's going to come and read that story for you. It's found in Luke chapter 24 if you want to open your Bibles there. If you've never heard this, this is a great story. 
Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart, to believe that all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is an absolutely fantastic story. Follow what's happening. These two men had seen everything that had happened in Jerusalem. They'd heard all the stories, all the different rumors, and now they're walking seven miles to Emmaus, talking about all of those things, and all of a sudden Jesus appears right there. Right between the two of them, maybe he put his arm around both of their shoulders, just kept walking and said, what are you guys talking about? Big smile on his face. What are you guys talking about? And they said, well, where have you been? Have you not heard all these stories? And Jesus is thinking, yeah, I have. They're about me. And still they're walking along. I love the fact that he is so playful in this part of the story. He's just bringing it out of them. So they share everything with him, and Jesus says, mm, gosh, let me tell you even more. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he walks them all the way through it. Still, they don't know who he is. So then the Bible says, and hopefully you caught this, he told them he was going to go on farther. He had no intention of going any further. He knew they were going to urge him to stay, so he said, oh, I'm going to keep going. They said, no, no, stay with us. And they had dinner together, and he broke bread. Remember what that symbolizes. He broke bread and began to pass it around, and then their eyes were opened. I wish the Bible said this. It doesn't. This is just in my own imagination. I think the last words Jesus said to him was, well, I'm out of here. And he was gone. Just disappeared. That was the end of their time together. And Jesus now leaves their presence, but he does not leave their hearts. And they go and begin to tell people 
about what they had seen. They told people about the resurrected Christ. Can you imagine how that would come out? Maybe there weren't enough words to sum it up, so they would simply look at people and say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it really is quite remarkable. It really is. We have seen it, and we believe it. You know, the resurrection is remarkable. Not only remarkable, it's also very curious. In the beginning, for many people, it can be confusing, but then it becomes inspiring. And when you're inspired by the resurrection, it brings about within you a hopefulness and a gratefulness that is wonderful and intriguing. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the heart of it is the very thing that gives us faith and separates our faith from every other belief system. Let me show you how that looks. Take a look at this. Every other belief system, every other person that would claim to be a god would spell their name like this with a small g at the beginning of it. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our God's name looks like this with a capital G. Because of the resurrection, we serve that type of an authoritative God. And when we speak of him, we do so with a capital letter at the beginning of his name. And that's the only God that we can do that for because we serve the only God that has risen from the grave. We serve the only God that has overcome death. And he is different than every other claimer there is. Our God is the God of a capital G because of the resurrection. It is truly remarkable. I saw this a few months ago. was really moved by it. I wrote it in the front of my Bible. I do that with different things that capture my attention. I just carve up the front of my Bible with them. I came back across it this past week. I want to share it with you. We're going to put it up on the screen in case you want to write it down and read it over and over and over. This is what it says. In God's unfathomable wisdom, He gave us a bedrock foundation for our faith, an event that is at once undeniably supernatural and yet also subject to concrete historical proof. It's the certification of Christ's messianic mission, even more his deity. It seals the promise of our own resurrection, a reason for hope beyond the grave. That is good teaching. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It really is quite remarkable. Yet people struggle to believe it. Even today, people struggle to get their head around it, to get their heart around it. Not sure whether it's something that they can trust. Not sure whether it's something that can change their life. I'm not one of those people. I believe it with all of my heart. I always have. I have always trusted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you why this morning. Maybe you're struggling with that type of trust in your own life. Maybe you're struggling to communicate to other people why you believe in the resurrection. Whatever the case might be, hopefully these things will help you. The first reason that I believe so emphatically in the resurrection of Jesus is because of what Jesus said about it before it happened. Now catch that. I believe in the resurrection because of what Jesus said about it before it happened. During the time that Jesus was alive, there were teachers of the law. They were called the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and they came at the law from different perspectives. But when they got into the presence of the Lord, they were always trying to trap him, always trying to trip him up, to make him say something that would expose him as a fraud. He never did. Then they found themselves at times, I believe, wanting to believe, but just not sure how. In those moments, they would go probing the Lord for specific answers. In the Gospel of Matthew, you see that happen. 
in the process of it, Jesus talks about the resurrection before it ever takes place. And he does it in the most curious of ways. We're in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 38. Tina's going to come back up and read for us. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying, we've heard all kinds of stories about the signs that you have done, the miracles that you have performed. We want one of our own. We want to see it ourselves. And Jesus looks at him and says, it's not going to happen. In our flesh, it's very easy to judge those teachers of the law and to say, your faith is very weak. Why is it that you have to see something like that? Can't you just accept what you have heard? It would be easy for us to judge them, but I have to be honest with, and, with you and tell you that if I were alive during those days, I probably would have been just like them. I want to see the miracle for myself. I want to see it with my own eyes. So I'm not quick to judge them in this regard anyway. Jesus, instead of performing the miracle for them, he grabs hold of something from their past, grabs hold of something very familiar to them. All of these people were Jews. They had heard the story of Jonah. They had heard the fleshly side of it, and they had heard the supernatural side of it. So he uses that as a teaching point. He says, if you can believe that Jonah was swallowed by the fish, and three days later he was spit out on the shore, then you can believe in me. It's very familiar to him. And you get the physical side of it. Jonah, the physical man, swallowed by the fish, the physical fish. But the supernatural part of it, three days later, he was spit out of the belly of the fish. Jesus says, that's exactly what it's going to be like for me. If you believe that, then you can believe in me. You can have faith in me. In the United States of America, the familiarity of that might sound like this. If you can believe that George Washington won the Battle of Valley Forge and then became the president, first president of the United States of America, then you can believe in me. That's the familiar. Sometimes, though, when that's not getting through, Jesus will move out of the realm of the familiar into the personal. In my life, it might sound like this. If the Lord was talking to me, you would say, Phil, you grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and you hate it. I do, as a matter of fact. I believe that Wichita, Kansas is the ugliest, dirtiest, smelliest city on the face of the earth. Growing up in Wichita, I despised it. There were certain parts of the town we would drive by and I would think, oh, it just smells like rotting roadkill here. This is terrible. I want it out. 
Now, my brother, on the other hand, grew up in the same place I did, and he loves Wichita. When I graduated from college, I thought, please, Lord, don't ever send me back there. He said, please, Lord, get me back there as fast as you can. So Rick loves the, the city of Wichita. I despise it. Jesus would look at me and say, fill as much as you wanted out of there, and got delivered. That's what's happening to me with the grave. I'll be there, but then I'm coming out. It's the personal you figure out what the personal is for you that you might understand it. Jesus said these things before it ever happened. He taught on the resurrection before he was ever crucified. And that strengthens my faith. It helps me understand and believe and trust in a resurrected Lord. If that's not enough, I also believe in what the apostles had to say about it. Now you have to understand that one of the rules for apostleship was that they had seen the resurrected Christ. Now they had to be called by the Lord in order to have that title, but they also had to have a personal experience with the resurrected Christ. Every one of them did. I love the things the Apostle Paul has to say about it. Now let's just take his situation. Paul was a very wealthy man before he became a Christian. He was a man of prominence, a man of stature, a man of position. He was a great teacher of the Old Testament. People were flocking to be around him. At the birth of the church, he would tell you himself he was the greatest persecutor of it, trying to stop the New Testament church from ever going forward. In fact, he was responsible for the first murder of the church. He gave his approval to the stoning of Stephen. That was the Apostle Paul. And then he met Jesus. On his way to the city of Damascus, walking that road, the Lord came and met him, struck him blind, closed the eyes, his physical eyes, but opened the eyes of his heart and revealed himself to him. And the Apostle Paul became a believer right there in that moment. I want you to hear what he says about it. We're going to go to the book of 2 Corinthians. And Tina's going to come back up. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 16. I repeat... Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you, or exploits you, or takes, takes advantage of you, or pushes himself forward, or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? 
Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. I love the way the apostle says that right at the end. God knows I'm not lying about this. He has preached the resurrected Christ at great peril to himself. He was a wealthy man, again, a man of position and stature, and now all of that is gone. You heard what he had to say about it five times. He received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. He was beaten 39 times. Five times he went through that. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was on the verge of starvation, cold and naked and hungry. All of the wealth was gone. All of the position gone. All of the stature gone because of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And he believed so strongly in it that the Apostle Paul was willing to give up everything that others might know, that others might believe. And right here at the end he says, and God knows I'm not lying about it. I read that this past week and got kind of curious about why it is that people would lie. So I did my own little study on it. I went to psychiatrists and and psychologists and even sociologists and, and started studying why it is that they would say people lie. Almost all of them give four reasons. Here they are. The first one is this, because of a joke. They will lie to lead other people into a joke. The second one, this is no great revelation, they'll do it to avoid punishment. The third reason, they will lie for their own personal gain. And the fourth reason that they all agree on is because they don't know the truth. Somebody else deceived them and they have been perpetuating that lie. Now let's take those four things and apply it to the apostle preaching the resurrection. Is he doing that as a joke? Well, it was absolutely no joke to him. Remember what it cost him. Remember what he gave up for the cause of Jesus Christ. It was no laughing matter. It was no joking matter. Did he do it to avoid punishment? Not at all. Good heavens, five times he was beaten 39 times. Five times he endured that. He was stoned, shipwrecked, all those other things. He certainly didn't do it to avoid punishment. Would he have lied for his own personal gain? The Apostle Paul had everything to lose and nothing to gain in this world by following Jesus Christ. He gave it all up. So it was not for his own personal gain, not that he might get greater wealth, not that he would grow in position or stature or favor, nothing like that at all. So was he doing this because he had been led into a deception? Absolutely not, because you need to remember one of the ways that a person became an apostle was they were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And so was Paul. He wasn't preaching something that he hadn't seen with his own eyes. He was preaching what he had seen and now what he was living. The apostle knew what he was speaking about. It had changed his life. So I can listen to those things from the apostle Paul and I can listen to what Jesus says about the resurrection before it ever happened and those can make it very easy for me to believe. But if that's not enough, one of the other reasons that I believe in the resurrection is because I'm a person of faith. And that makes it pretty easy. The writer of Hebrews says that faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. To be sure of what you hope for in the realm of Christianity means that we can be certain of eternal life. We can be positive that it is available for us. All through the New Testament, we find great teachings like this. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And here's what that means. The moment we die, we go to be with the Lord. The moment we die, we are right in His presence. 
We don't spend centuries in the ground in some extended sleep. We don't go to another place where we might face judgment or others can do something to try to get us out of there. For the believer, we go right into the presence of the Lord. There is a long, unbroken chain of people that have experienced that. From the New Testament all the way up to today, they are in the presence of the Lord. And I believe with all of my heart that at the moment I die, that's exactly where I'm going to go. And I believe it because of the resurrection. I believe it because Jesus overcame death, and because he did, I can. That's why I believe in the resurrection. It is tied directly to my faith. You need to see what the Bible says about this very thing. We're in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to go back to 1 Corinthians. And I want you to listen again. These are the Apostle Paul's words. Tina's going to come back one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, and we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, their first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul the preacher would boil it down like this. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, then nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ did not come out of the grave, then our faith is useless. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, our preaching is equally useless. We have nothing to offer. But because he did, we have everything to offer. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we have great hope, we have great faith, all of it tied to the resurrection. It matters. It changes us. It gives us a hope and a future. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what it's all about. And without it, No reason to believe in anything. But because of it, great reason to believe in God's amazing love. So we close this out. I want to take you to one other place in the Bible, but I'm going to do it in a a different way. I'm not going to ask you to turn with me. I'm going to turn there myself. And then I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles closed and then do the same thing with your eyes. Just close your eyes and listen to this passage. It's two verses, very simple, very short. Again, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom, is like a merchant. The merchant is Jesus in this story, looking for fine pearls. You are those fine pearls. Some translations of the Bible actually say pearls of great price. When he found one of great value, the merchant, when he found a pearl of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Keep your eyes closed, but listen to this part of the story. God said, I want my kingdom to be full of pearls of great price. He says to Jesus, his son, I want you to go out and find them. And when you do, 
pay whatever it takes. Whatever the cost, you pay it and you bring them back. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the greatest cost imaginable, his life. He died on the cross for you because in God's kingdom, in his eyes and in his heart, you are a pearl of great value and he wanted you desperately. So his son paid that price. Isn't that good news? It really is. And that's why I have faith in the resurrection. It wouldn't have been enough for Jesus to die on the cross. If he hadn't come out of the grave, it would not matter. But because he did, we get to be counted as pearls in the kingdom of God.